the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. If we look to the answer as to why for so many years we achieved so much, prospered as no other people on earth, it was because here in this land we unleashed the energy and individual genius of man to a greater extent than has ever been done before. This great nation will endure as it has endured. Let me assert my firm belief that the only thing we have to fear is fear itself. Freedom and the dignity of the individual have been more available and assured here than in any other place on earth. You are about to embark upon the great crusade toward which we have striven these many months. The eyes of the world are upon you. The hopes and prayers of liberty-loving people everywhere march with you. We're not, as some would have us believe, doomed to an inevitable decline. I do not believe in a fate that will fall on us no matter what we do. I do believe in a fate that will fall on us if we do nothing. And so, my fellow Americans, ask not what your country can do for you, ask what you can do for your country. From every mountainside, let freedom ring, and if America is to be a great nation, this must become true. So let freedom ring. As for the enemies of freedom, those who are potential adversaries, they will be reminded that peace is the highest aspiration of the American people. We will negotiate for it, sacrifice for it. We will not surrender for it now or ever. We are Americans. This is Always Right Radio on AM 1420, The Answer. Here's your host, Bob France. Good morning to you. Thanks for joining us. We are underway on this Tuesday. Feels like a Monday, of course. Hopefully you spent some uh, good quality family time yesterday on Memorial Day 2022. Hopefully you spent some time obviously reflecting on what the day means, giving thanks to those who laid down their lives so that you and I might live ours. That is exactly what it's all about. A few Democrat politicians don't know that. They were wishing, uh, thanking everybody who served uh, on their Twitter greetings over the weekend, clearly misunderstanding the fact that Veterans Day is in November. This is specifically for those who lost their lives, who paid the ultimate price, made the ultimate sacrifice uh, that we were celebrating yesterday and memorializing and commemorating and uh, celebrating the lives of those who laid down theirs. So yesterday, hopefully you did reflect on that just a little bit. Hopefully you enjoyed the three-day weekend that comes along with Memorial Day, and hopefully you're ready to rock this morning. We've got a lot of very important stuff, to, uh, important things to talk about. Coming up in less than a half an hour, Jim Jordan. Normally he joins us on Monday. He bumped it today because of Memorial Day. Very glad to have him. It's a daily double when you get Jordan and Kersenau back-to-back, but that's what you get. Peter Kersenau will be with us at 10.10 this morning, and then at 11.10, a little bit uh, 
a little bit off the beaten path, if you will, rather than uh, top news stories. We're going to be talking with former mafia captain, hitman, uh, killer, uh, uh, mafioso. Can I tell you about Michael Franzese? You probably know Michael Franzese. You probably have heard of him. He walked away from the life. He now has a book out that he is promoting that essentially compares the way the current federal government is run to the way the mafia was run during his time in the criminal organization, in the crime family. So we're going to talk to Michael Franzese about that coming up at 1110. So uh, Jim Jordan, Peter Kirsten, uh, Michael Franzese will be joining us. We have a lot to get to this morning. Uh, I want to start uh, right away with the top story. So let's go ahead and do our Pledge of Allegiance. Patriots, please stand and face your flag if you have one. If you do not, that's all right. Close your eyes. And imagine one. Put your hand on your heart and join us for our pledge. If you are a believer that 9mm handguns should be banned in the United States of America in complete defiance, destruction, and shredding of the Second Amendment to the Constitution of the United States of America, well, then you don't understand what that flag represents. You don't understand liberty. You don't understand the Second Amendment. You don't understand the Bill of Rights. You don't understand the Constitution as a whole. In other words, you'd be just like Joe Biden. That's right. And if you're just like Joe Biden, well, then you probably don't want to stand and do this anyway. Go ahead and take a knee next to your favorite ex-quarterback. For the rest of us, I pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States of America and to the republic for which it stands, one nation, under God, indivisible, with liberty and justice for all. I had to dive right into the monologue early this morning for uh, a lot of reasons, the biggest of which is I just have so much material that we have to get through. What I just said leading into the pledge, and I always try to tie my lead into the pledge into one of our top stories, uh, what I just said is exactly correct. Joe Biden is now suggesting that It's not just assault rifles that need to be taken from the hands of the American people who believe in their Second Amendment rights. And assault rifle, of course, is a very, very loose term. It can be defined any number of ways. He wants you to think that everybody with an AR-15 has an AK-47 or an M-16. He wants you to think that you have a fully automatic rifle. You don't. AR, of course, does not stand for assault rifle. It stands for Armalite. It's the manufacturer of a rifle. Uh, It's extremely lightweight, very easy to wield. Anyway, an AR-15 is what he started out targeting. AR-15s, unquote, assault rifles. But then standing outside of Marine One yesterday, or maybe a correction, I guess this would have been Saturday, uh, Joe Brandon, Joe, don't call me Brandon Biden, made it very, very clear. It's not just rifles. They're making a play for all guns that they decide are just a little bit too scary, including the most popular handgun in the world, the 9mm pistol. It's a handgun. 9mm handguns in a variety of different manufacturers, but they are the most widely used gun in America, and maybe the world. I think I said the world. I'll say America. And now he's targeting those as well. Listen. All right, where are you, you freak? All right, this should be working one more try here. And they showed me a, 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 a x-ray. He said a 22 caliber bullet will lodge in the lung 
We can probably get it out, maybe it'll get and save the life. A nine millimeter bullet blows the lung out of the body. So the idea of these high caliber weapons is that there is simply no rational basis for it in terms of about self-protection, hunting. I apologize, obviously, for the audio. I continue to be just mesmerized at the fact that the media thinks this is a great gathering place for a press conference outside of Air Force One or Marine One. Uh, And he's actually in between the two there. It's just just no sense whatsoever. They bring the microphones out and they chase them down right outside jet engines or helicopter engines. It's just such great audio. It's fantastic. Smart job. Great job. Well planned, White House. And this isn't a Biden slam. This is because this happens with, with every president. Trump was I, just so bad. Hopefully you could hear the words above the jet engine sounds. What Joe Brandon said, first of all, the most important part of it that he said, is he said that he was shown an x-ray by doctors. Well, this might be the most important part. I think it's all important that showed what a lung looks like when it's hit by a, uh, a lower caliber bullet. What did he say, his original? Yeah, uh, 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 x-ray. He said 22 caliber bullet will lodge in the lung. 22 caliber bullet will lodge in the lung, and then they can usually get that bullet out, he said, and, you know, save the life of the person. But then he went on to say a 9 millimeter bullet blows the lung out of the body. <laughs> Cops carry 9mm weapons. They have shot many suspects in the course of terrible crimes. No lungs came exploding out of the body. This is Joe Biden's penchant for hyperbole, exaggeration, and melodrama just in order to try to underscore his point. He's wrong. He's a liar. The lungs are not being blown out of the body. Somebody posted last night on uh, when I posted this to my social medias, uh, said John Wick himself couldn't blow somebody's lung out of his body. Well said. Exactly correct. But now we get to the even bigger issue here. Nine millimeters, which can, quote, blow the lung out of the body. Nine millimeter bullets, he said. There is no rational reason to have these. There's no rational reason people should need these. Listen again to this part of it. Yeah, save the life. A nine millimeter bullet blows the lung out of the body. So the idea of these high-caliber The idea of these high-caliber weapons, there's no rational basis for it. You thought he was just coming for ARs. You thought he was just coming for his dreaded assault weapons, assault rifles. He's coming for the most carried self-defense weapon in America now. And it's not close. This is reality. Now, let's move from that statement. And this, by the way, is the reason why I and many other people have said many times, you never give an inch on gun control, never a single inch to the left. You give them one tiny little crack, and they're going to exploit it and use it to take more. You give them an inch on anything having to do with your Second Amendment rights. They're coming for more. That's why you never give up, not an inch. I hope you understand that. You think he's going to, did you ever think they would stop with assault rifles? If you did, now you know better. Because this guy is so completely, cognitively out of whack, 
he sometimes says the things out loud that they are really only planning in secret. And that is, we're coming for handguns next. We're going to disarm Americans. Now he let the cat out of the bag, and now we're alarmed, and now we're alerted to it. And that's good for us. Thank goodness he's such a, he's such a mental midget. But the reality is, uh, they are doing this, and you need to know it. Now, let's go to point number two that is very important for us today. The left has decided that the story that we often point to about the reason, you know, the best way to, to deal with a violent criminal who is shooting at people is to shoot back at him. The proverbial good guy with a gun is the only way to stop a bad guy with a gun. That's what we always say. And you know why we always say it? Well, because it's always right. Nobody defeats a bad guy with a gun with a stick. Nobody defeats a bad guy with a gun by throwing a rock at him. Nobody defeats a bad guy with a gun by taking a knife to him. The gun is always going to win. The only way a bad guy with a gun is stopped is with a good guy with a gun. But that didn't stop MSNBC from bringing on a completely clueless guest who said this. You know, we've seen very clearly that, you know, there's no such thing as a good guy with a gun taking out a bad guy with a gun. That's Gregory Jackson, Community Justice Action Fund Executive Director. There's no such thing as a good guy with a gun taking out a bad guy with a gun. Wow, that's a pretty strong statement that MSNB threw up there. In fact, it was so strong, CNN decided to repeat it yesterday with Jim Acosta. Jim Acosta, interviewing an NRA uh, member, said this. You know, NRA supporters like yourself, they keep saying that the answer to all of this is good guys with guns. The 19 good guys with guns failed in Uvalde. The cops were there in the school. Huh. The 19 good guys with guns failed in Uvalde? I'm, I'm going to go back and check my one-week history here because it was a week ago today that the horrible, horrible atrocity in Uvalde occurred, but I'm going to double-check my notes here to see exactly how that ended. Oh, it ended with a good guy with a gun putting a bullet in the head of the bad guy with a gun. Was it as timely as we would have liked? Of course not. Do we know that all the protocols were followed by the police, as I said last week? No, we don't. But we do know how it ended. A good guy with a gun killed a bad guy with a gun. Which brings me to story number three. The mass shooting, or rather... The near mass shooting the media doesn't want you to know about. You want to know why the media doesn't want you to know about the near mass shooting in Charleston, West Virginia last week? One day after the Uvalde horrendous atrocity in Texas? The reason they don't want you to know about this one is because it was stopped by a good guy with a gun. Or in this case, a good girl with a gun. A good person with a gun. Put an end to a mass shooting before it began. Listen. And first at noon, we continue our coverage on a shooting that happened at a graduation birthday party last night at the Vista View apartment complex here in Charleston. Police say 37-year-old Dennis Butler showed up with an AR-15 and started shooting. Now, what police say could have been a mass casualty event was stopped by a bystander. Eyewitness News reporter Ava Rash has been covering the latest developments for us all morning. And Ava, it sounds like that woman was in the right place at the right time. 
Lauren, you are exactly right. Police say that she was legally carrying a concealed pistol. She shot Butler multiple times, stopping him from shooting dozens of people, including children. Now, whenever I spoke to police this morning, they told me that he was approached early on in the night for speeding throughout that area near the party. Investigators say he then left, came back about 30 minutes later, parked in front of the 1300 complex, got into the back seat of his car where that AR-15 was, and began firing into the crowd. That woman took action, shot and killed Butler. Now, Lieutenant Tony Hazlett says no one was injured and that this woman did the right thing. This lady was carrying a lawful firearm, okay, a law-abiding citizen who stopped the threat of probably 20 to 30 people being killed. She engaged the threat and stopped it. She didn't run from the threat. She engaged it, preventing a mass casualty here in Charleston. That was Lieutenant Tony Hazlett, uh, or Hazlett, Charlton Police Department. You didn't hear the story, did you? Maybe if you have conservative Second Amendment supporting friends on social media, maybe some of them posted it from this local TV station in Charleston. And thank you to Eyewitness News, WCHS, Fox 11 in Charleston, West Virginia. Maybe you saw it from somebody like that who posted a local story. Did you see this story on CNN? No, you did not. Did you see the story on MSNBC? No, did you not? No, you did not. Did you see this, the feature on the on the uh, uh, Meet the Press on NBC? On any of the Sunday shows on ABC or CBS or anywhere else? No, you did not. Why? Everything that happened at this event in West Virginia counters everything you were told after the tragedy and the travesty and the atrocity of Uvalde. A lawful, law-abiding gun owner, a concealed carry holder, a woman, saw this nut speeding back and forth down the street outside of this graduation party several times. Lord only knows what his motive was, but saw this person, was alerted to it, then saw this person come back, get into his back seat, where he pulled out an AR-15, and began shooting at the crowd. Fortunately, missing everyone up to the point where she got her or pulled out her legally concealed carry weapon and shot and killed him. She saved, Lord only knows how many lives. A dozen? Two dozen? I don't know. What I do know is that this graduation party would have been the scene of another tragic, horrific, mass shooting, gun violence story that the left would have covered all day long. as just another example of why we have to get rid of guns. This was a day after Uvalde. But because of the actions of a gun owner who shot and killed the perpetrator before he could take all of these lives... We don't have a new gun story here. Everyone, be quiet. Bury this. Don't talk about it. Shh. This is why we don't mess with the Second Amendment. And this 
combined with the stories of Acosta and MSNBC telling you there's no such thing as a good guy with a gun stopping a bad guy with a gun, literally just days after this story in West Virginia happened that they don't want you to believe, this is why we never give an inch to the left on gun control. I'm going to talk about that with Jim Jordan and with Peter Kersenow and with you. 216 This is Always Right Radio on AM 1420 The Answer. It's quite an astounding thing when you, when you listen to these people completely ignoring facts that do not... It, it's kind of like from, from one mass shooting to the next. I told you this a bit last week. Two weeks ago in Buffalo, the mass shooter was white, drove from, uh, I can't remember what part of New York, but to Buffalo, about a two-hour drive, and uh, went into a grocery store, a supermarket, in a predominantly black neighborhood and opened fire. Now, he didn't just shoot blacks, but it was perceived to be a racist hate crime because 10 of the 12 shooting victims that he uh, killed were black, and he did write a bunch of really nasty, disgusting things on his uh, Facebook page or whatever social media screed that he used there. So clearly it's white supremacy. It's racism. It's white nationalism. That's what made this happen. We've got to go after white people. Then, of course, last week it was, you know, the horrific situation in Uvalde, but they couldn't play that card again because, in this case, it was a Hispanic man and a almost exclusively Hispanic uh, school in a very, very Hispanic uh, area, Uvalde, Texas, down outside of San Antonio. So they can't play the it's white supremacy and it's a race situation, so what do we do? we got to go with the gun. It's a gun situation. we got to ban guns, more gun control. Got to keep the hands out of uh, the guns out of the hands of the people, and oh, by the way, one day later, the gun in the hand of the people—a law-abiding, a law-abiding, concealed carry holder—killed somebody starting another mass shooting. Actually, fired that gun in defense of other people and took him out. Guess which story never made it to your nightly news? Guess which story never made it to the Sunday shows yesterday? Guess which story is being completely ignored and buried? You know exactly which story, and you know why that story has been buried. We're going to talk about what the expectations are of gun owners in this country, and we're going to ask what the expectations are of our legislators as they debate now and discuss whether or not there will be new limitations placed on our Second Amendment rights. Jim Jordan will tell us, coming up on AM 1420, The Answer. Life. Liberty and the pursuit of happiness. Always right radio with Bob France of the answer. Always right radio on online at alwaysright.us. Thanks for joining us on AM 1420. The answer it's 938. Let's dive right in now to our conversation with Congressman Jim Jordan. Normally joins us on Monday. Hopefully he enjoyed his Memorial Day uh, weekend with his family, reflecting a little bit on the heroes who gave us our liberty. Congressman, good morning, sir. How are you? I'm fine, Bob. Hope you had a wonderful holiday weekend as well. We did, yes. Uh, we uh, finally, for the first time in three years, were able to uh, renew our family tradition of going to the uh, Memorial Day Parade in Elyria, my hometown. And, yeah, uh, it was a, it was that's a nice great. weekend. Yeah, it really was. Yeah. All right, Congressman, um, a, a lot of work to get here to here. There's a reason why many of us say that we cannot give an inch 
when it comes to gun control measures being pushed by the left. Because if you give them an inch, they will try to take another inch, and then eventually a foot, and then eventually the mile. We know the story. And and the example of this now is 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 being played out before our eyes. First, it's, oh, those terrible assault weapons, assault weapons, which, of course, is very, very loosely defined. What is an, an mm-hmm. quote, assault weapon? But it's got to be the assault rifles. Got to go. We've done it before. We'll, we've, we, we can do it again. This is what Joe Biden says. Now, yesterday, or excuse me, Saturday, uh, excuse the audio because they always conduct these press conferences for whatever reason outside right next to Air Force One as you hear jet engines. Mm-hmm. But nonetheless, uh, I'm, I'm sure you can hear this and I'm sure you have heard this. A 9 millimeter bullet blows the lung out of the body. So the idea of these high caliber weapons is that there's simply no rational basis for it. He was comparing 22 caliber bullets to 9 millimeter bullets. He said, we've got to go after these high caliber uh, bullets and weapons because there's simply no rational reason for it. The 9 millimeter handgun is the most popular gun in, in the yep. United States. 140 million or so people carry or have 9 millimeter weapons. He said, first assault rifles, now we're going to handguns, Congressman. Isn't this exactly what those of us who support yeah. the Second Amendment are worried about? No, of course it's what we're worried about. It's what we've always been worried about. And uh, you can't have big government infringing on law-abiding citizens' Second Amendment liberties, plain and simple. Um, this was tragic what happened in, in Texas. We all know it was terrible, and the person who did this was evil. Um, it, it, we understand that. But the answer is never, never to take away the rights of law-abiding citizens. And that, that, that is just fundamental. It's why the founders understood this, put it in the Bill of Rights, the number two amendment, I, I, I tell people all the time there's a reason the Second Amendment's right next to the first because it's pretty darn important, and we need to understand that. I think the American people get it. The American people have common sense, but unfortunately, left-wing politicians don't because they love telling you what you can say. They love telling you what you can do. We saw that play out over the last year, year and a half with, with uh, the virus. We saw uh, the attempt with uh, the Disinformation Governance Board, and on and on it goes. So, no, you can't go down this road. Um, and we got to we got to fight it. We now found out that they're going to have uh, the Democrats are going to have a markup on Thursday, going to pass eight bills that are going to limit uh, American Second Amendment liberties. And uh, we're going to we're going to I'm heading back to D.C. tomorrow night because we got a markup on uh, on Tuesday morning. Yeah. And we've got to fight that with every fiber of our being, yep. because, again, they are going to try to completely disarm the American people one weapon at a time and declaring, by the way, that a 22 just lodges itself into a into a lung. But a nine millimeter bullet blows the lung out of the body. Have you ever seen a, a, a lung being blown out of somebody's body because somebody was shot with a police officer's nine millimeter Beretta, which is what most of them carry? Joe Biden says so many things that just he it's like almost whatever pops into his brain, he says. And it's like he said ridiculous thing after ridiculous thing. Um, it's it's a sad, sad situation because, it, frankly, it's not just on this issue, but he said all kinds of crazy things on all kinds of issues. Yeah. And there's a uh, you know, we talked about this last week. There's a reason that 74 um, percent of, of our fellow citizens think the country's on the wrong track. It's because Joe Biden, and the Democrats are doing all kinds of bad policy. And as I said before, I think they're doing it intentionally. And you're right. When they when they start with one thing, it's always something more they want to get to. Um, remember, it was Joe Biden who said, I will never impose a vaccine mandate. I will never do that. Well, then he turned around and did it so much so that the Supreme Court had to tell him it was unconstitutional. That's how the left operates. And so here they come now for the Second Amendment. And we have to fight this every step of the way. 
Now, having said that, obviously, the knee-jerk reaction that we always get from them is in response to something horrible, and Uvalde was, of course, just just, just a, an atrocity. So, no, course, so yeah. they're burying their children starting today. The funerals are underway, and, it's just, and of course, the two adults as well. Uh, mm-hmm. so, so the question that I ask, short of going after guns, which, of course, is just insane, makes no sense whatsoever, does the House GOP, to your understanding, have a plan to address school security? Well, I, th- I think what has to happen is the common sense things on you, you need a resource officer there who's, who's properly trained. You need you need a, a secure lock school. I mean, this school, we, we found out it sounds like, based on what we learned in the last several days, that someone left the door unlocked uh, by mistake or whatever, um, you know, thinking they were going to come in and out, forgot to lock it back up or something. So um, you got to have this, the, the, the actual facility secured, and you have to have properly trained uh, law enforcement, properly trained security personnel uh, uh, there to protect kids and, and teachers and parents who are coming there to get their kids and to protect the learning environment, the educational environment. I think we all understand that. And, and, and Republicans would be supportive of that. I think anyone in the country and the world is supportive of that kind of concept. But what we're not supportive of is what we just talked about, which is taking away uh, guns from, from people who actually follow the law and who are good citizens and law-abiding. From uh, from the standpoint of funding that, that's always the obstacle. When I talk to people about this, they say, oh, my gosh, the local schools don't have enough money to pay the teachers the right wage. They don't have enough money to fund all of the programs they want to fund. How are they going to be able to employ full-time security guards or, or police officers being paid by the schools? You know, and, I, and, Congressman, I think about so many of the omnibus spending bills that you guys yeah. have signed off on and so much money that is being sent overseas to projects and things. We're not talking about feeding people in third world countries, by the way. We're talking about my favorite one is the Pakistani Gender Studies Program, in which we sent 20 or 30 or 40 million dollars to. If we stop wasting the taxpayers' dollars on that garbage and give it to local schools to hire, train, and then employ uh, full-time security guards, particularly in elementary schools, in every elementary school building in America, wouldn't that be a better expenditure of our dollars? Of course. Quit spending money on stupid things. Spend it on, on, on things that make sense. And, and frankly, everyone, you have to make choices. You have to prioritize things. That's just the way life works. So I, it seems to me prioritizing the education of young, uh, young people and, and making sure they can learn in a safe environment is a pretty darn high priority. Maybe we should focus on that versus some of the, the goofy things, as you mentioned, that we've, we've spent American tax money for. Yeah. No question about it. Another priority has to be our sovereignty and our right to decide how we deal with pandemics, how we deal with health emergencies. You and I spoke about this last week, and in fact, two weeks in a row. Uh, The conference in Geneva is over now, three days ago. Um, From what I understand, the House GOP has written a letter demanding withdrawal yep. from the HUO, WHO, WHO largely, yeah. Yeah, largely over these uh, these amendments to the documents that essentially would give uh, control of you know every country that signs on, including the United States. Um, how we deal with health emergencies, it would be it would be handed you know it would be handled by Tedros, the leader of the WHO. Yep. But but even no you're right Bob we, we saw in this letter I think is sponsored by a colleague of mine who's on the Judiciary Committee Mr Tiffany um, a, a good letter but it's it's more than just this this crazy situation now which is relative to our sovereignty and, and this international body making decisions on behalf of the United States that one particular paragraph in fact that 
that, that they're talking about. It, it's more than that. It's, it's remember the history here. This is the same organization that was fronting for and, and, and chilling for uh, China when the virus first happened. This is the same organization that, that seems to want to do whatever China asks them to do and not what's in the best interest of, of health around the planet. So um, I think for that fundamental reason, we should be out of this, this organization. And then you couple that with, with this, this new treaty concept idea that uh, has been uh, talked about that the Biden administration is supportive of. I think those two together certainly warrant us not being a part of this for the United States of America, for goodness sake. We can we can figure out what needs to be done when it comes to uh, dealing with uh, big health concerns. Yeah, and, and this is a terrifying thing, again, to think that anybody who is closely, even if they weren't closely associated with the Chinese communists, just the fact that a globalist organization, which is what the WHO is, I consider it more than just an international body, it's globalists running this, deciding what the United States of America, our free republic, can do to its people and uh, in response to things is simply, well, it's it's it's, well, uh, it's unthinkable. And, and, and I was just going yeah, to say, Bob, never forget what happened here. Uh, we knew early on, Fauci knew more than two years ago, he knew, he got that email from Christian Anderson that said, virus looks engineered, virus not consistent with evolutionary theory. He got that on January 31st, uh, 2020, and he went into overdrive to, to change that. You know, this is, that, that is just plain um, language that says this thing came from a lab, and Fauci goes to do everything he can to change that narrative, and he's successful in doing that. And I think the World Health Organization helped him change that narrative as well. So that's another reason we shouldn't be supporting this uh, this international agency. No question about it. Uh, Congressman, I want to go back to money now, a different situation here. According to what we learned over the weekend, President Biden is very, very close to uh, signing on to an agreement to forgive $10,000 per borrower on student loans. Now, I don't know if that goes back two years, five years, 10 years, 15 years, or 20 years. I don't know how many how many years you, and what arbitrary line they draw on that, but $10,000 per borrower just on student loans. Now, I just got a truck. I don't know about you, but I could I would love to get $10,000 off of the loan that I agreed to <laughs> on my truck. I would, and I've still got, I've still got about another four years on my mortgage loan. I would love to have ten thousand dollars lopped off of that. How and why can he choose which loans that people voluntarily sign on to take and then pay back? Uh, can he decide, you know, which ones to say these don't count anymore? Yeah, or, or the, the thing that gets me: how about the, the the young young man or young lady who didn't go to college and decided they were going to go work, and they've been busting their tail. Uh, or maybe they started their own little small business. Do they get this kind of break? Do they get a do they get a check sent to them? This is all political designed to help people he thinks are going to benefit him and their party politically, and it's it's baloney. And the moms and dads who paid for their kids to go to school and didn't didn't take out paid paid it and, and paid off a loan maybe they had for goodness sake they're not going to get money either. So everyone knows this is just completely wrong. Um, but you know the left they just they just do it anyway. Um, yeah, this is. Is it legal? Think, but, but, yeah. Aside from being right or wrong, is it legal? National Review says it's completely illegal, and Biden knows that the executive yeah. branch has no generalized power to forgive any amount of student debt for debt holders uh, of any income group. That they, they just can't do it. So yeah. I mean, there's a legality. No, I issue. think that's. I think I think that's exactly right. And uh, uh, just like he said, you know, he, he wouldn't impose a vaccine mandate, then did. And the Supreme Court had to tell him it was unconstitutional. We'll probably have to do the same thing here, but. The, the, the thing is, I don't think they care. Remember, everything they're doing is not by accident. It's intentional. What they're doing to the border is intentional. The fact that we now have $6 gas, 
$4.60 average across the country, in some places as high as $6, $7. That is intentional. They want that to happen to the American people. Which, uh, for the life of me, we never thought we'd have an elected official who would want that on their citizens. But these people do. It's all – the 41-year high inflation is intentional. What they're doing with this uh, loan situation, they know it's wrong. It's intentional. They're going to do it anyway. That is why it's so important that in five months um, – they get a they get they get a, a rude awakening, and the American people show up and put Republicans back in charge of Congress. Last uh, issue for you this morning, Congressman Jim Jordan, and we certainly appreciate it. By the way, I saw a note that says you're you're uh, you're signing a bunch of your books. Do what you said you would do. Do what you said, right? Um, uh, because I just saw a note in my email about that. So uh, so the book is uh, is, is being widely circulated now, right? Yeah. Now it's it's uh, now thanks for thanks for it's going very well. We we you know. Thank the good Lord. It's uh, it's an easy read, and, and people must like it because we've sold a lot of them, and it's been a, it's been kind of fun to talk to people about it and kind of give them a behind the scenes look at what 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 happens in that that crazy place called Washington. Yeah, no question about it. And, and um, congratulations on your on your success. For Thank that. you. But the last issue I wanted to ask you about uh, with respect to what's going on, you used the word intentional just a couple of moments ago about uh, what Biden is doing, and and that is uh, you know forgiving student loans. I want to stay in the the higher ed realm. A Harvard poll, I just saw this story this morning, and I thought I'd ask you, only 6.4% of the graduating students at Harvard identify themselves as conservative. And I looked at that, and I said, that. I mean, I know that they're slanted left, but it is a statistical impossibility that 94% of the students who go through a university like that would all suffer from the same groupthink, where they would all be the same exact ideological place um, as one another. What does this say about higher ed? What does it say about the curriculum? What does it say about the faculties on campuses when 94% of them all think the same way by the time they graduate? Well, I I mean, it confirms what we all suspect, that these places are just, you know, just liberals running everywhere. Uh, But it might also point to some of these people are probably, in the cancel culture world, even though it's probably some anonymous survey, they're probably still a little reluctant, if they are conservative, to indicate that. So I think that would probably drive it. We know the the majority are, are, are of course, liberal, um, just the nature of the the, the beast. But but, but I bet some of it is also people just thinking, you know what, I'm not even going to say. I'm just going to keep my head down. I know how crazy the cancel culture left is. So it's probably some of that, too. But we've long known that the, you know these tenured professors at these universities are all lefties, and they just keep propagandizing you know young people with the crazy left wing message. That's why we have some of the you know the, the the focus you see from these newer members on the Democrat side who get to Congress who are just you know so socialist in their thinking. Um, it's a problem, but I guess I always try to look at the, the positive news, though, Bob. In spite of that, in spite of the left control and big tech, big media higher education, big corporations, big sports, Hollywood, uh, the Congress, the White House, and the, and the House of Representatives, in spite of that, they don't control we the people. And I think we the people are getting ready to make a big change in five months on November 8th in this midterm election. And that's the good news. Am I going too far to suggest that those last two stories we discussed are linked? Because Biden is forgiving student loans to make it easier for more kids to go into college. And the reason why is because he knows what they're going to come out like when they go into college. They're going to come out thinking yeah. leftist, woke, and everything else that's going to benefit, benefit him and his party. Yeah. Yeah, you know it benefits the Democrat Party if they, if they cut breaks to the very people who are Democrats. And you're right. I think it's probably, probably, uh, probably the right um, – you know, that's probably one of the, the key reasons they're doing it, um, handing out other people's money. 
to their political uh, to their political friends and their their political party. Uh, a further weaponization of the government. This time, it's not against us; it's for them, and it's uh, it's wrong either way. But that's how the left is operating. Congressman Jim Jordan on the AM fourteen twenty. The answer. We appreciate you coming on on a Tuesday. Obviously, we had Memorial Day yesterday. I'll tell everybody again: do what you said you would do, fighting for freedom in the swamp by Jim Jordan. Make sure you pick that book up. Maybe he'll even sign one for you. Thank you, Congressman. We appreciate it. You bet. Thanks, Bob. Take care. That's Jim Jordan. It's nine fifty five. Time out. Right back. You and I have a rendezvous with destiny. We'll preserve for our children this, the last best hope of man on earth, or we'll sentence them to take the last step into a thousand years of darkness. Welcome to Always Right Radio with Bob France on AM 1420, The Answer. Hour number two underway now, AM 1420, The Answer. Thanks for being with us. Always appreciate it. Always Right Radio is online at alwaysright.us. Lead stories of the day are all listed for you. Check them out. 52 people shot in Chicago this weekend alone. Ten of them were killed. Democrats are rushing to Chicago to show their support for the family members of the victims. Gun control advocates are just sieging the city, trying to demand that something be done about this proliferation of gun violence. Oh, wait a minute. They didn't do any of those things. We're going to talk about why that is right now. Peter Kirsten now joins us as hour number two gets underway at nine minutes past ten. It's the 31st morning of the fifth month of the year of our Lord, 2022. Peter is a member of the United States Commission on Civil Rights. He's a Cleveland attorney. He's the host of the Kirstenau Report and so much more. Pete, good morning, my friend. How are you? Doing great. Beautiful weather out there. Got to run my hill for a long period of time. It's, it's hill season, Bob. Yeah, it's my worst season of the year, actually. You know, I mean, <laughs> some people some people don't like winter. Some people don't like, you know, the, the, the dead heat of summer. Some people hate hill season. I hate hill season. So uh, <laughs> you, go, you go ahead and embrace that all you want there, Pete. Uh, okay, Peter Kirsten out. Let's, uh, let's get into, there's so many elements here that I want to talk to you about guns and gun control. Since we last spoke, of course, we found out all the details of what happened in Uvalde, or at least many of the details. We're going to talk about the police response to that as well, which has, of course, been very, very uh, controversial and politicized as well. But I want to start, I want to start with the fact that they have continued to choose tragedies to fit their narratives depending on well what the what the particulars are in buffalo um it was a white shooter and a predominantly uh, black in a predominantly black neighborhood grocery store 10 out of the 12 victims in the shooting in buffalo were indeed black and the shooter had said some pretty controversial racist things uh both in his screed i won't call it a manifesto but his screed online and then uh, some of the things that he said during the during the attack so it's white supremacy. We got to do something about white supremacy, white nationalism. Uh, you know, uh, a far right extremist. They they like to call it, even though none of those things describe that shooter. Um, but down in Texas, it's a Hispanic shooter. It's uh, almost an exclusively Hispanic school that he shot up. Uh, exclusively Hispanic victims. Um, and so, therefore, we have no white supremacy angle here, so it's got to be the guns. The guns did it. Gun violence, gun violence, gun violence, and here we go. So where do we go with Chicago? 
For example, 52 people shot in Chicago this weekend alone. Ten of them were killed. And I've got a New York Post headline in front of me that says over 30 people were shot and killed over Memorial Day weekend across the country. So which ones do the Democrats decide are the ones that deserve their anger and their rage? Which ones are going to be the most politically advantageous for them, maybe, is the answer to that question. Go ahead. Right. Uh, You just answered the question. It's whatever is politically advantageous, because, you know, we saw the Democrats cheer on violence during the George Floyd riots. In fact, despite the fact that they were constantly telling us that we had to stay in our basements locked down and masked, when it came to George Floyd protests, it superseded this pandemic and uh, the major threat to world health. Uh, It's only what is useful to them. We have thousands upon thousands of people who are shot every year in inner cities across the country, all controlled by Democrats, most of them black. And nobody says boo. Uh, In fact, they've made things worse. The federal government has made things worse. Obama and Biden both uh, in, engaged in or, or implemented policies and restrained cops and uh, imposed consent decrees on cities that exacerbated the violence. You know, they have some of the strictest gun control laws in many of these jurisdictions, yet lo and behold, they also have the highest crime rates. You know, Chicago is a war zone, but they're not alone. Baltimore, St. Louis, Philadelphia, Washington, D.C., New York City, the list goes on and on. Strangely, Detroit used to be the capital of such violence, but it's kind of fallen off a little bit. They're probably a little relieved, but still horrific violence in in absolute terms. So there's this huge disconnect between um, what is occurring on the street and what would actually reduce violence and death in those cities. But they don't care about that. Whatever is politically useful is what they seize upon for the moment, and it's nonsensical. When you look at Uvalde, for example, um, this guy was known to anybody who had their eyes open, and everybody who had their eyes open. There were so many of the flashing warning signs that we habitually see every time one of these, after they do the you know, after-action report in one of these mass shootings, they start ticking off the warning signs. They see everything, and everyone was aware of it. Very often, the FBI has them on a watch list, and the FBI hasn't done anything about it. This is a guy, for example, Ramos, down in Uvalde, who many students had been telling people about. This guy was going around mutilating animals. He said that he was going to engage in a school shooting at some point. Many of his classmates referred to him as, quote-unquote, school shooter. He had videos of himself with, you know, holding a bag of, of dead cats. He had mutilated these animals. It went on and on and on. Yet, apparently, he, you know, didn't register or, or didn't merit any kind of attention. And this is a little bit off topic, but it it, uh, is right on this point nonetheless, is that, you know, about 40 years ago, the left engaged in, and I'm not going to say it was completely wrong, but it was an ill-considered policy of opening up our institutions, letting out people who were incarcerated, not, well, many of them are incarcerated, but were institutionalized for real problems. They were either self-mutilating themselves or they were a clear and present danger to the public. Nonetheless, a kind of ideology overtook the left and others, too, and they decided that uh, they weren't going to have these, the, the, the broad, mandatory 
institutionalization. So if you walk downtown Cleveland, for example, uh, you know, I've been doing, you know, I've been downtown Cleveland for 40 years, and there's been an increase in the number of individuals lying on the sidewalk in the middle of the night, even when it's, you know, 15, 20 degrees out there, the number of people out there who are panhandling, and you can tell, I'm not a psychologist or a psychiatrist, but you don't have to be to tell that these people are extremely troubled, and they're not helped by the fact that these institutions have been open. But nonetheless, you go back to Ramos, it was clear and present to anybody with eyes that this guy was a powder keg about to go off. He even said he was going to engage in school shooting. Nothing happened. Nothing happened. We have, and he was on social media all over the place talking about these things. He was engaging his own self-mutilation. We've got social media that will remove you, will ban you, if you say the slightest thing that doesn't fit the left's narrative. But when people are out there virtually shouting that they're going to engage in a mass shooting, they do nothing. Well, yeah, that that's that's true. Obviously, in in this particular case, that's true because of some of the egregiousness of the things that he allegedly said. I don't know what confirmation we have on this, by the way, that he said when he was a freshman that in 2022, when he's a senior, he's going to shoot up a school. But that's what uh, I've seen several references Tony, to that. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Congressman Tony Gonzalez was the first one. He said it live on Fox, I think, on Thursday or Friday, and it was mind blowing. But I don't know that I've seen confirmation, but the point going back to the issue, though, of the response of the left being take people's guns uh, on MSNBC Saturday. I believe this was they put somebody on uh, from. Let's see. Here, I'll just play it for you so you can hear exactly what this guy said. And Greg, what do you make of those calls to arm teachers? <laughs> you know, we've seen very clearly that. You know, there's no such thing as a good guy with a gun taking out a bad guy with a gun. This is Greg Jackson, Community Justice Action Fund Executive Director. There's no such thing, Peter, as a good guy with a gun taking out a bad guy with a gun. Uh, Not to be outdone, yesterday, Jim Acosta over on CNN. People don't seem to have much trouble uh, if they want to unleash that kind of destruction to do just that. You know, NRA supporters like yourself, they keep saying that the answer to all of this is good guys with guns. The 19 good guys with guns failed in Uvalde. And yet, Peter Kersenow, the way that terrible rampage ended was with a good guy with a gun putting a bullet into the head of the bad guy with the gun. They keep saying that this doesn't happen. Now, was everything done according to proper protocol there with the police? Again, we'll talk about that in a moment. Uh, So could it have been done sooner? Maybe. I don't know. Maybe it couldn't have been because of the barricade, uh, you know, steel barricaded door uh, uh, behind which he hid. Um, but again, a good guy with a gun did end that. And, and Pete, this is the big one that I want to share with you. This is the story you're not supposed to know about and I'm not supposed to know about. And in fact, the mainstream media went to great lengths to make sure that we don't know about it. Not a scant bit of coverage on CNN, MSNBC, the networks or anywhere else. But one day after Uvalde last Tuesday on Wednesday, the 25th, a woman in Charleston, West Virginia, pulled out her lawfully uh, concealed carry pistol and shot a man who began a mass shooting at a crowd of people at a graduation party. He got into the back of his car, pulled out his AR, and started firing from the back window of his car. He even tried to give himself cover by, by, by staying in the, in, the, in the back of the car. She saw it, saw where it was coming from, pulled out her weapon, and killed him. No one was killed but the the, the, the criminal, the, the shooter, the would-be mass shooter named Dennis Butler. This is exactly why 
Um, the Second Amendment. Well, it's not ex- just that. Obviously, it's to protect the for the population to protect itself against an overreaching government. But the fact of the matter is, from our from a self defense standpoint, this is exactly why there are 150 million gun owners in America who are law abiding gun owners who are there to protect themselves. Guns save far. I mean, I mean, we're talking. We're talking, you know, uh, 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 exponential, or as Joe Biden would say, exponential numbers of, of, of uh, more, more lives than, than could ever be taken by guns because the overwhelming number of gun owners are law-abiding gun owners and not criminals. The only way the criminals get the upper hand is, is to disarm people like the woman who shot and killed this person in West Virginia that you were never supposed to hear about, Pete. A uh, couple of things. First is, uh, you're right, we weren't supposed to hear about it, but everybody heard about it. You heard about it. I heard about it. I suspect most of your listeners heard about it. Um, this kind of information yeah, is yeah, but getting Peter, out but now. Peter, but Peter, Peter, if I may, you and I watch the same kind of news from the same kind of places. That's why we heard about it. If you're a CNN devotee, you did not hear about this. If you're an MSNBC loyalist, you did not hear about this. If you read the New York Times or the Washington Post exclusively, you did not hear about this, Pete. And that's the that's the thing. You and I, yes, and maybe we shared it on our social media with other like-minded people. But if you are a a like I said, a loyalist of those other places, you did not hear about it. And that's how they want it. Well, if you're somebody who wants to be confirmed in their uh, uh, perceptions, their presumptions, yeah, you didn't hear about it. And that is those people who watch MSNBC and CNN. But, Bob, you've seen their numbers are tanking like crazy. More and more people are getting news from alternate sources, not necessarily sources on the right, such as Fox News, but just sources all over the place. And they're getting sources from social media. Their own friends are telling them this. This kind of stuff has been spreading like wildfire. It's not necessarily cabined any longer to the right or even far right. Uh, but you're right in terms of not everybody's aware of it. And unfortunately, the benighted individuals who still call for gun control are the ones who don't hear this kind of stuff. But this is, as you said, this is evidence as to why it is that these calls for gun control in, in, the, in the broad sense that you're talking about are extraordinarily ignorant and inconsiderate. And by the way, with respect to Jim Acosta, I think we'd do better to have imbecile control as opposed to gun control. <laughs> so many bad thoughts and policies come not just from Jim Acosta, but from a lot of these people who immediately get on television after an incident like this and start spouting off about things they don't know, including uh, Mr. Brandon, who, um, you know, I heard him, I think it was yesterday, and I was trying not to spend time listening to the news or anything, but you can't, you really can't avoid hearing titanic stupidity. It has a way of emerging and permeating the atmosphere. And he was talking about nine millimeters versus 22 calibers. I'm, I'm thinking, what planet am I on? We are being led by this guy. And what's amazing about it, I don't know if you heard any of it, Bob, but they were questioning uh, Biden about gun control. And he was talking about um, he means nine millimeters sounded like it was a cannon. Um, I think I, I guarantee you two thirds of your listening audience probably owns some type of nine millimeter weapon, whether it's a Glock, well, you, somebody, everyone does. Okay, yeah. uh, and he's over here talking. We are including, all including like, probably that? every police officer. Right, right, and most police uh, forces have nine millimeters. That's true. Right, um, but but nonetheless. This is the commander-in-chief who has no idea what he's talking about. And what's stunning about this, eh, it's not stunning. What am I saying? We see it over and over again. The media doesn't call him on it. He could call the sky green, and they would just simply elide over that. They don't care about presenting the facts or correcting this individual. But he says things 
and so do many gun, gun control supporters. They're so profoundly ignorant. Uvalde is the poster child for why we should not be giving up our gun rights. As, you know, the meme was going on, you know, with the NRA and other um, uh, people who oppose gun control about, uh, and I don't remember how the phrase goes, but I remember it being repeated a number of times about, you know, when seconds count, the police are 15 minutes away. And you need to have a form of self-protection wherever you are. They used to say, well, okay, we can, we can understand that if you're living out in Montana and there's no law enforcement nearby, you might need uh, some form of self-protection, but you really don't need it anywhere else. Are you kidding me? Are you kidding me? The average response time in most big cities is 35 to 45 minutes for a major crime. 35 to 45 minutes, you won't last 3.5 to 4.5 seconds if you don't have a weapon nearby. So a lot of people want guns for a whole host of reasons, and it's protected by the Second Amendment. Now, does that mean you're entitled to have an ICBM? No, you're not entitled to have an ICBM. But people understand that not just for self-protection or for sport, but the original purpose, of course, was you know well-regulated militia. We wanted to make sure that the rights afforded to us in the Bill of Rights and the Constitution more broadly are protected not by the government alone, because our rights to weapons come from God. They do not come from government. The Constitution is there to tell us what restraints are on government not the restraints on us. The government can't take our weapons away from us without some form of due process, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But we have an inherent right to protect ourselves. And Ivaldi is the, one of the best examples for why ordinary citizens should have access to weapons because one hour passed while those toddlers, those children were being terrorized. And it was only when somebody took a shotgun and went in there and one mother jumped over the fence after being restrained and arrested and rescued her two kids. And I suspect most of your listening audience would concur with that. They said, yep, that's what I would do. Every single one. No one would be think, sitting there thinking, well, what's the best process we should, what's the best procedure? What are the best protocols? No. You hear that there's a gunman in a school with kids, you move. You're not thinking about tactics. You move. That's, that's, an, that's a parental instinct. You know it, Bob. I know it. If that were my kids, there's not a police officer or an army that could have stopped me from getting in there. And if they try to restrain me, guess what? That's why I work out all the time. They wouldn't have a chance. I would be protecting my kids. That's why we have an inherent right to self-defense. We don't wait for the government to do anything. If we do, we're screwed. Pete, just going back real quick, because we've got to get a time out for our news here, but going back to the first part where you were talking about the mental health issues and so forth, this is, um, this is, this is the, the clear fear, I think, that a lot of people have, is copycats who are looking to do the same, get the same kind of notoriety. I'm holding the front page of today's paper. It's a newspaper in Lorain County that I don't really want to give a lot of publicity to because I don't like them at all. But I'm holding <laughs> the front page, and there are two stories on it with uh, Lorain County Schools. District, first headline, district, Wellington High School student has been arrested. This after making threats against the school. Next to that, district, Midview student in custody. A student at Midview East Intermediate, so this is middle school, has been apprehended 
uh, in connection with allegedly threatening a school shooting. These are two rural, well, somewhat-ish, rural-ish districts in Lorain County, and they've got kids threatening to shoot up schools. This is going to become more and more and more common at least the threats, and which ones you are, are attention seekers and which ones are actually intending on doing it is going to be the task for everyone to figure out. Yep. And I don't want them figuring it out while there aren't armed officers in school buildings. That has to be priority number one, is that protection and that, and that defense. Pete, we'll continue we need, right after. Yeah. We need culture control, not gun control. Well said. Culture control, exactly right. We'll talk more after the news. Keeping you informed among the uninformed. Always Right Radio with Bob France on The Answer. Ten thirty-eight. now we continue with our good friend Peter Kirsten. Now we've been talking about gun control. We're talking about violent crime in America. We're talking about some of the issues involving uh, the way things went down at uh, Uvalde in Texas. I want to pivot now to two other topics. Peter, the first one. I talked about with this uh, with Jim Jordan about this last hour. Not sure if you heard it or not, but Joe Biden is now apparently on the verge of doing something that even Nancy Pelosi said uh, that he cannot do, and that is ordering a ten thousand dollar forgiveness for student loan debt uh, to all students who uh, earned under one hundred and fifty thousand dollars last year, or married couples under three hundred thousand dollars. Now, the concern here, of course, should be obvious. Number one, why should students not have to pay back their loans? Why am I not getting ten grand toward my truck uh, uh, loan that I just took out? I've got to pay that. Uh, why am I not? I still owe money on my home too. I've got ten thousand bucks, and I would knock off that. Would do me pretty well as well. And I made less than hundred fifty thousand dollars. Why only students? Number one, and then number two again. How and why is he promising things that again Nancy Pelosi herself said cannot be done? Uh, quote. Asked about the idea last year, Nancy Pelosi confirmed by simply saying, quote, the president can't do it. That's not even a discussion. In other words, the executive branch cannot just order the forgiveness of student loans, which are, of course, private contracts between borrowers and banks. And yet here we sit. He's going to try to try to cancel $10,000 in student debt per borrower, by the way, without any declaration of how far back that goes. Is it, you know, people who graduated Five years ago, 10 years ago, 20 years ago, exactly what is the arbitrary line with which they will, uh, you know, cut off that uh, that forgiveness? Your thoughts? Yeah, it's all arbitrary. It's all political. And simply because they can't do it doesn't mean they won't try to do it. Remember when Obama on several occasions said he didn't have the authority to do various things and then several months later would go ahead and do just that. And that's the same thing with Biden. The law is not an impediment to progressives. It's something that's used as a tool to be manipulated. And in this particular case, I think that he's making a political error. This is the only reason he's doing it, obviously, is because he thinks it makes good sense from a political standpoint. And the Democrats are about to get destroyed if all things stay the same. And it doesn't look like anything is going to change, even though it's a long time until November. But it looks like it's going to be one of the biggest red waves in history. And so they're trying to do anything they can to lessen the damage. And they believe that one of their constituencies are, uh, you know, woke former college students. 
And the AOCs of the world have been out there pounding the drum about loan forgiveness, and they think they're going to get the AOC contingent possibly to be more, more motivated to come out to vote. I think it's a, a uh, political miscalculation on their part, just from the raw politics of it. Yes, they may get a few people who are then motivated to come out who otherwise wouldn't because Brandon has been destroying just about everything. and The Democrats have been undermining their own credibility on a host of issues. But by doing so, as you've just indicated, there's a sizable cohort of individuals who are going to be just incensed by the fact that they did the right thing. They paid back their loans. Do they get a tax credit for having done so? Do they get any accolades at all? And then how about the individuals who paid their way without taking a loan? The people who do the right thing, again, are getting it getting the shaft, and all the individuals who are contributing to, you know, the kind of, you know, we, one of the things we should have talked about at greater length in the previous segment, Bob, is the culture. You know, we need culture control, and the degradation of the culture starts in so many, I mean, it, it, it manifests itself in so many different areas, and this is one of them. And then there's the economic pr- perspective. Um, first of all, we don't have the money. We're $30 trillion in debt. Uh, Biden keeps talking about the deficit. Heck, the, the, my goodness, this is this is crazy on steroids. Of course, that's right in his wheelhouse. But nonetheless, this is going to have, at bare minimum, an inflationary impact on uh, education costs. We have seen that whenever the government gets involved in education, subsidizing secondary and graduate school education, the tuitions go up, the costs go up, and they continue to spiral out of control. This is boneheaded from an economic perspective, from a cultural perspective, from a fairness perspective, and also I think it's going to redound against them from a political perspective. Yeah, and you know, uh, Peter, you're right. Real quick on the culture control, because I know there are some other things we want to talk about, including Harvard. Two different Harvard stories, by the way, which I think everybody is interested in, even if they don't have anybody at Harvard. But um, Ted Cruz said some things. You know, know, Ted Cruz gets routinely mocked by the left, and I I think he is every bit the lion conservative. Somebody phrased it that way. They used to call Ted Kennedy the lion of the left, but I can't remember who it was who said that Ted Cruz is kind of the lion of the conservative movement in the Senate. And he said, you know, the reason for this this you know, growth in school shootings and also, quite frankly, the reason for the entitlement type of mentality that so many of the Gen Zers have these days um, is because of the culture. It is because they grow up without parents or at least without right. parents, plural. And it was the biggest point that he made that you get kids who grow up without fathers and there are far too many of them as over 70% of them, or excuse me, over 50% rather of American marriages uh, now end in divorce. And some 70% of those who end up with criminal records, runaways, drug abuse, overdoses, et cetera, are people who grow up without dads in single parent households. And because uh, they don't learn authority. They don't learn respect for authority. If they don't have it in their home, then they don't have respect for authority when they get to the school, when it's a teacher or a coach. They don't have respect for authority when they're in society, when it's a police officer or a judge. They just don't have it. That is that what you mean when you say we need culture control more than we need gun yes. control? Yeah, the, the, it starts with the fatherless homes. That's the biggest, biggest driver. It spews so much toxicity into the general culture. It's not just, you know, the, the mass shootings. It's individual crime rates. It's individual uh, crime commission. It's um, whether or not you succeed in school. It's whether or not you make commitments with others. It's a whole host of issues that have continued over the years to erode our culture. You can almost draw a straight line 
between the fatherlessness of our homes and the lack of success and the lack of morals and the lack of almost everything that, that we have in our current culture. There's been a, a real degradation of the culture over the last 50 years. A political party is actually trying to promote just that. And it's, it's stunning, and it's, it's surprising that we don't entertain that more broadly, that Republicans don't entertain that more broadly. The Democrats are going to continue to try to either um, – dismiss that or obfuscate it because their policies are contributing it contributing to this and, and in fact so many of their supporters are described by it mm-hmm. uh, but nonetheless that's that's precisely what I'm talking about and you know the, the the fatherlessness in the homes spawns a whole host of other toxicities and illnesses and the the crime rate is one of them the uh, degradation of our educational institutions is another one just the, the, the this descent into almost insanity that we've seen advancing uh, at an increasing rate over the last say 10 years or so some of it is bewildering but yes the culture is it. If you take a look at the fact that prior to, I think it's 1966, don't quote me on this, but I'm probably only a year off. Uh, prior to 1966, you didn't hear about mass school shootings. None. And then after 1966, we, we had the first one. I think it was four individuals. Um, and I don't mean to diminish that it's four versus, say, 25. But the first time it really pierced the public consciousness was with Columbine which I believe was in 1999, so we're talking 23 years ago, all right? right. Prior to that, these kinds of things were unknown. When you and I were growing up, Bob, we didn't know about this stuff. This didn't happen. It never, ever entered anybody's mind. And the fact of the matter is, back in the old days, there was a a greater amount of two-parent families. The culture was not as, as degraded, both in terms of the social media television, um, even in our educational establishments. And so we've, we've got this increase in so many maladies, and we keep looking the other way, and we won't address what's right in front of us. And as long as we do that, this is going to be increasing. Now, um, if you take a look at you know, the fact that our political class and so many of our quote-unquote tastemakers, whether it be in movies or you know other elevated institutions, let's say, um, they are you know they set a trend. And what you see is, let's just take the George Floyd um, uh, follow-up. We saw hundreds of riots throughout the country, some bigger than others, but hundreds of them, and. Our leaders, a certain segment, a large segment of our leadership class was cheering them on. And we saw this in the media. The media was excusing this. So we had a vice presidential candidate who was hosting bail for these individuals, was hosting uh, you know, various programs to increase right. bail money for these individuals. That sends a message, a pretty powerful message. And it's little things like that. It's not one thing It's here or one thing there. It's a host of things that work in concert and generally lead to the degradation of our culture. And this is not any surprise that we see these kinds of ramifications. We see, you know, calls for student loan forgiveness. Come on, are you kidding me? Responsibility is spat upon in society today. If you're a responsible individual, you're viewed as a mug. But if you just leech off the government the way the Democrats would like you to do, because they have no policy prescriptions for improvement in order to attract votes, you know, perfectly fine. 
Democrats will pat you on the head. The media will pat you on the head. The Jim Acostas of the world will think you're great. Harvard <laughs> University will say that, boy, you are really, really smart. You know, you're exactly right. You know, Pete, I'm glad you brought up Harvard there at the end there. Nice job segueing into the last two stories here. We may have to wrap them around a break. We'll do one on each end. The first one is the one that it, I just saw today, and I asked Jim Jordan about this too, because what, what an indictment of the of the higher educational system, not just the Ivy Leagues, but just in general. Um, a survey was conducted by the Crimson. That's the Harvard newspaper, of course. It was emailed to all 1,269 graduating seniors. It got 40% response, so 60% either just didn't see it or didn't want to say. But of the 40% that responded, it found that 4% of the students in that graduating class lean conservative, 2.4% very conservative, a grand total of 6.4%. By my math, that means there's 93.6%, right? 93.6%, I do the math right, I think. Um, that are liberal or very liberal or progressive or very progressive. Peter, that would be a statistical impossibility if faculty and curricula and, 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 and the culture created and so on and so forth was one of exploration and open ideas, open exchange of ideas, and not just pure, straight-up left-wing indoctrination and wokeness. It's impossible for 96% of a, of, of a thousand people to all have groupthink mentalities and all think the exact same way if they were exposed to a variety of ideas while on campus. What does this say not just about Harvard but about higher ed? It doesn't say anything good. First of all, a couple things. Number one is, um, yeah, you say it'd be a statistical fiction or impossibility, and I think that's right because I don't think that accurately reflects the percentage of conservatives on campus. It only reflects the percentage that are willing to identify themselves as conservatives on campus. So powerful is this kind of Stalinist top-down enforcement of conformity to woke ideals that most people aren't going to raise their hand and say, I'm a conservative. There's no way you do that, especially at a Harvard or most college campuses today. You keep your head down. And I've, I go to, or I used to, uh, before they got even more Stalinist. I used to, as you know, participate just a couple times a month in colleges and law schools throughout the company, country in debates and other presentations. Um, and I talked to a lot of professors and a lot of college students, and, you know, I, I, I would say that the percentages are a lot higher than that, but they come to you and they talk very quietly. Many of them do. A lot of them are, are open about it, and they just don't care. But a lot of them are very quiet about their conservatism because they know that you've got to toe the party line. Now think about that. Think about how toxic and awful that is that you go to an, a, an institution of higher learning where you're supposed to be exchanging ideas in an open setting, and yet you feel you've got to mouth the party line kind of like a good aperitif at uh, in the Soviet Union. That's abysmal. I would be embarrassed if I was affiliated with any university or professor anywhere else, or if I could speak my mind. But nonetheless, uh, even if I couldn't speak my mind, I would be privately embarrassed that that was the case. I'd be mortified, and I would be angry. But nobody's making too many changes, um, and so we're left with that. 
On top of that, though, is what you've got. You've got a liberal hegemony that's maintaining itself, starting at the college level, and then they select themselves. It's self-selection and it's overt selection by others who are like-minded, where they infiltrate and perpetuate these these liberal ideas, progressive ideas, in institutions. They go from the Harvards and the Yales to various law firms and and government positions and institutions and philanthropy and so on and so forth. And that's why you see the cultural hegemony among the elites. Are, are, it's progressive, and that's not good to, for society. And we've seen some of the consequences of that in terms of people have a general feeling. They can't really put their finger on it. They may not be able to define it, but they do think that the – I use the term insane. I, the country is going nuts, and people are getting alarmed by it. This is, we're at a point now, the 60s weren't even remotely as nutty as this. There may have been a little bit more violence in terms of riots and things like that, but in terms of outright lunacy, the kind that really threaten the structure of the country, we haven't seen this before. Not that, you know, the Civil War may have been it, but this kind of stuff can't mm-hmm. perpetuate itself, and we expect to have a good outcome. Peter, I'm going to take our final time out here and ask you to hang because I knew you wanted to talk a little bit more about the Harvard admissions situation. It's been an ongoing deal. I know you at the Civil Rights Commission have written about it, have, uh, and you guys have studied it. I'll give you a chance to update us on that right after this. Always Right Radio, right back. Okay, 10.56. i got about uh, three and a half minutes left for Peter Kersenow. To talk about Harvard, Pete, we've talked uh, at length about the Harvard racial discrimination cases when it comes to admissions. They want to uh, essentially tell higher performing Asian students and white students that you don't have a spot in our freshman class because we have to admit more people who are less qualified than you on merit, but they diversify the campus, i.e. other racial minorities. So it is completely discriminatory. It's completely uh, a violation of the Constitution. And now it's before the Supreme Court. What do you got for us? Well, uh, a lot. Let me just tell you one thing about it. First of all, yes, Harvard discriminates egregiously on the basis of race in violation of Grutter, which is the Supreme Court case of 2003 that permitted certain types of racial discrimination admissions. Harvard violated that. That's not the key, though. There's so many more important things. The fact that the Supreme Court privileged or permitted a little bit of racial discrimination. A little racial discrimination begets a lot of racial discrimination, and that's been seen at the collegiate level and K through 12 level, including businesses too, let's be frank, across the country. It's proliferated and expanded radically since then. So if you let the cat out of the bag, the racist cat out of the bag, it's going to go around devouring almost everything else. Let me give you a few examples, and I could give you literally a hundred that I've got. I'll be writing about this a little bit later. But nonetheless, because of Harvard and the permissiveness. The Supreme Court, by by sanctioning Harvard's discrimination and every other university's discrimination, has sanctioned in a cultural way discrimination or quote unquote good discrimination. That is when our elites tell us the discrimination is okay. But if you go to various schools, and I mean K through 12, for example, let's take uh, the Buffalo school system. Public schools teach, quote, America is built on racism and that all Americans are guilty of implicit racial bias. This is being taught to little kids, Mm -hmm. okay? It also says students must be trained to identify and eventually overthrow their oppressors. What? Are you kidding me? This is being taught. Also, America has created a school-to-grave pipeline for black children, and all white people play a part in perpetuating systemic racism. But here's the key. 
Remember Martin Luther King, content of character versus color of skin? Here's what they're teaching now. Pretending not to see, I'm quoting, pretending not to see color is, is called colorblindness, and colorblindness helps racism. And saying that treating everybody equally, therefore, is racist. It's upside down. This kind of insanity is being fed to our fourth, fifth, well, all the way up to, to 12th grade. And it's being fed in a mantra that doesn't brook any kind of dissent. You either say this, again, in a Maoist, Stalinist fashion, or, you know, you get reprimanded. That's one of the reasons why at Harvard, People who have grown up, grown up in this kind of regime, they know to keep their mouths shut. They know when they can say, I'm a conservative. You're not permitted to say those kinds of things anymore. This is egregiously wrong. We must remedy this immediately, all hands on deck, or we lose this country. Peter Kersenow coming in at the wire. Look at that. You literally crossed the wire right as we turned on to 11 o'clock. So very well done, my friend. Thank you. Very important information. Uh, any idea when we get a decision, by the way, on, on this uh, from the court? Oh, it won't be for another year. Another yeah, year. there'll be okay. our oral argument probably in the fall or, or thereabouts. And then um, it's going to be at least a year, I think. Okay. Not until the end of, of uh, the, uh, probably mid-June of next year. So the problem continues for at least another year, and it will with the next class and the class after that being being uh, uh, admitted into Harvard on based uh, in large part on the color of their skin. Peter Kirsten out. Terrific stuff, as always, my friend. Thank you. God bless. We'll talk to you next week. Take care, Bob. 11 o'clock, time for the news. On the other side of the news, we're going to go into a different direction. Former mafia captain Michael Franzese will join us. He's got a book out that compares the American federal government to the mafia. We're going to talk about his career, what made him walk away from it, and talk about this comparison as well. That's coming up next, AM 1420. You and I know and do not believe that life is so dear and peace so sweet as to be purchased at the price of chains and slavery. If nothing in life is worth dying for, when did this begin? Just in the face of this enemy? Or should Moses have told the children of Israel to live in slavery under the pharaohs? Should Christ have refused the cross? Should the patriots at Concord Bridge have thrown down their guns and refused to fire the shot heard round the world? The martyrs of history were not fools. And our honored dead, who gave their lives to stop the advance of the Nazis, didn't die in vain. Where then is the road to peace? Well, it's a simple answer after all. You and I have the courage to say to our enemies, there is a price we will not pay. There is a point beyond which they must not advance. This is Always Right Radio with Bob France on AM 1420, The Answer. Hour number three underway now, 10 minutes past 11 o'clock. Thanks for being with us. It is a Tuesday, the 31st and final morning of the fifth month of the year of our Lord, 2022. Thanks again to Peter Kersenow, United States Commission on Civil Rights. Great stuff, as always. Thanks also to Jim Jordan, Congressman of the 4th Congressional District and Ranking Member of the House Judiciary. Always appreciate his input, so that was good stuff. And now we're going to go into a different direction. You probably have heard the name of Michael Franzese, or Franzese. You may have heard it pronounced that way as well. I've always heard it and pronounced it Franzese. Maybe you've even read some of his other books, from The Godfather to God the Father, Quitting the Mob, 
Uh, I'll Make You an Offer You Can't Refuse, uh, Blood Covenant, all of these books by Michael Franzese. And you're saying, okay, what about him? Who is he? Well, if you don't know, just super quick, Michael Franzese was born into the mafia life as a second-generation member of the Colombo crime family, called one of the biggest mob earners since Al Capone by Vanity Fair, and uh, featured in Fortune's list of the 50 most powerful mafia bosses. Uh, He left the mob. And that life, rather, after meeting his wife and serving a 10-year prison sentence. And today, he is sharing everything he learned from organized crime with audiences around the world. He mentors at-risk youth, which is amazing. And his latest book is called Mafia Democracy, How Our Republic Became a Mob Racket. Yeah, I think a lot of us have actually kind of compared the federal government to uh, to the mafia, and Michael has done so in this book. It's got a forward by former uh, New York mayor and presidential candidate Rudy Giuliani, and he joins us now, does Michael Franzis, to talk about uh, all of this. Uh, Michael, thank you for making time for us this morning. How are you, sir? I'm good. Thanks for having me. You know, I want to start just with a little bit of your background before we get into this comparison, which I find fascinating to uh, you know to the, the federal government to the mafia. Um, I, I saw an interview you did on YouTube actually as I was kind of prepping for our conversation today, and I don't know that I heard it necessarily explained this way or not. But the comparisons to Michael Corleone and the and the Godfather, um, you you referenced them. You said a lot of people have said that, but I don't know that I ever got the answer. Was the character? based on the life of Michael Franzis? No, I don't believe so. I think it was a coincidence, uh, you know, that there are all those similarities. I mean, I got into the life um, not because I wanted that life or because I was I was uh, raised for that life, but really to help my dad out. And, uh, you know, he had gotten a 50-year prison sentence, which was essentially a death sentence. And I was going to be a doctor. I was in pre-med school when my dad went off to do that time. And I got drawn into the life by Joe Colombo at that point, really to help my dad, because he would have he would have died in prison if we didn't help him out. And, uh, you know, obviously the godfather, uh, Michael Corleone, got into the life because his father was, you know, there's an attempted assassination. He got drawn in. And so those similarities uh, occur all the time. And because his name is Michael, my name is Michael, uh, I've heard that all my life. But uh, I think... It's just a coincidence. Okay. Well, I appreciate that. And it is this coincidence is amazing. The similarities are, are, are considerable between you two. So so people who do make that connection are not necessarily wrong. It's just not necessarily one that's based on the other. So having said that, can you just tell me a little bit more? And again, this is only because I found it fascinating when I was watching you on a different interview um, about your dad's role. I mean, what what was his? I think you described him from what I remember. Uh, as being somebody who was all in on that lifestyle, unapologetic about it. This is who I am. This is what I do. Uh, and obviously it cost him uh, 50 years of his life or or more. Uh, and, and then you were drawn to it. So tell me what your dad's role was and why you were, quote, unquote, drawn to it by him. Well, my dad was the underboss of the Colombo family, which is, you know, a very powerful position. It's the second in command of the family. And aside from that, my dad was a, a very well-respected, charismatic figure in that life. You know, he, he was well-liked and he was, uh, you know, well-looked upon for, you know, his service in that life, I would say. He was totally committed and uh, he did a lot of work for the family. You know, he's, he was uh, present in at least one of the wars that we had um, in the Colombo family. And my dad was a prominent figure uh, at, at that time. He was also, you know, a major target of law enforcement. Uh, he was kind of like the John Gotti of his day in terms of law enforcement, inve- <clears throat> excuse me, law enforcement investigations and media attention. 
And so, uh, you know, very high profile. And he was also a good father. I loved him very much. He was, uh, was a great husband to my mother. And, and um, so I looked up to him. And uh, in a way, I idolized him. So when he, you know, got into all the trouble that he got into in the 60s, he was indicted three times in the state of New York, went to trial three times, was acquitted each time. And then, uh, you know, he was uh, indicted in this federal case for masterminding a nationwide string of bank robberies, which until this day, I'll, I'll take this to my grave, it was a frame up. My dad was no bank robber. And that's what, uh, you know, drew me more to wanting to help him out when he got a 50-year prison sentence. Because he was 50 when he went in. You figure he had 50 on top of that, my dad would never come out of prison alive. So at that time, you know, Joe Colombo, who was the boss of the families, and I was very close with, started this Italian-American Civil Rights League. I got drawn into that. I saw it as a way to help my dad. And, uh, you know, before I know it, my dad proposed me for membership in the life. So that's that's kind of the, you know, brief uh, description of how this thing all started with me. Is that something, Michael, that you just cannot walk away from? If somebody proposes you for membership, you can't say, yeah, thanks, I'm good. You, there's just no choice. No, you can walk away. I mean, look, I could have said, Dad, this is not for me. I don't want to do it. Um, but, you know, look, I saw it as a way to help him out. And like I said, I loved him. I was very loyal to my dad. So whatever direction he pointed me in that he thought would be helpful, uh, to get him out of that sentence, uh, I was willing to do. I, you know, I asked no questions. I said, Dad, if this is what you want, you know, just point me in that direction. I'm I'm ready to go. A little earlier on in my program, uh, Michael Franzese, this morning, I, I was teasing the interview and promoting it, and I and I and I mistakenly and erroneously called you a hitman and uh, and a killer. Um, you know, and I, and I think sometimes we romanticize in some ways mafia figures like Sammy the Bull Gravano, who's out there, who's doing a lot of interviews as well. And, you know, he was those things. You were not an enforcer, though. You were an earner, right? That was your number one role in the Colombo family is you were somebody who generated revenue and profits for the family. You weren't somebody who was going out there and, and committing the violent acts that uh, that the mafia is known for, right? No, you, you know, I want to be clear on this because I, I never want to be misleading on it. Look, when when you become a made man in that life, you're, you're part of that life. You know, you got to do what you're told. And unfortunately, you know, there are times when there's, there's violence involved in the life, and it's inescapable. Okay. Um, so I want to be clear on that. However, you're right in that, you know, you, you kind of have two levels of people there. One, maybe being the gangster that's just a street guy that does a lot of that heavy work, so to speak. And then you have the racketeer type who's there to earn money for the family because without without money, you know, you, you don't have an organization. And so I was fortunate. I knew how to use that life to benefit me in business, and I had created some new things, developed new things for the family, and as a result made a, you know, a very significant amount of money. So that's kind of the path that I was on. That's where they wanted to keep you. You know, they don't, they don't want to. They don't want to jeopardize guys that are earning big for the family, and I, I was in that category, yes. Okay, and and that's good for the sake of that clarity. I appreciate that. You know, um, a, a couple of weeks ago I interviewed Bill O'Reilly about his uh, latest book in his Killing series called Killing the Mafia. And, uh, you know, he was talking about, uh, obviously, the, the five families and many of the things you were involved in. And, the, and, and people listened to that, and they told me that they're fascinated by it. I used the word a moment ago with you, romanticizing. It's so funny how, and funny in an odd way, not a, not a hilarious way, but, um, you know, the people who are terrified by some of the things that the mob could do to victimize people uh, during that heyday, 
you know, now those of us who weren't look back at it with almost some sort of a, wow, that's really neat. That is it true that that when you're growing up, not you in particular, because you explained your situation, you were on your way to medical school and you decided you had to help your dad. But did a lot of the people who join it look at it like this is almost like the the coolest clique that you can be be involved with? You're you're going to live a life where people fear you. Nothing is out of your reach because it seems like the romanticization of the mafia is what's happened through the decades since it was essentially wiped out? Oh, there's no doubt. I mean, look, I, I speak to young people all the time. You know, I do just part of what I do. I, I go into prisons, juvenile halls. I speak with these gangbangers. And, and to a, a person, every one of them, gosh, Michael, you know, I saw you in Goodfellas. You know, you, you guys had the cars, you had the women, you had the respect, you dressed up nice, you know, you had the power. And it's it's tremendously uh, intoxicating for these younger people. And, uh, and, you know, that's why they get into the life. You know, a lot of times they'll tell me, you know, they'll talk about the movies. And I'll say, Michael, you know, Goodfellas, and Godfather, and you guys had it all. I said, yeah, but did you watch the end of the movie? Who got killed? Who went to jail? Who lost their family? They don't see that part. They only see the romantic part of that life. You know, I'll tell you something, too, that was kind of fascinating to me. I have a YouTube channel. I do a lot of you know, stories and things. And uh, just two weeks ago, I read an article about uh, Lake Mead in Vegas, that uh, it's receding a bit. And it was a dumping ground, quite honestly, for the mob, you know, way back when, you know, and and there's uh, some, some drum barrels with bodies in it that came up as a result of the lake receding. And within, oh gosh, within three or four days, I got a half a million views on it. And it was one of the fastest, uh, you know, views that I, I mean, I got, you know, I get a lot of views, but that was so quick. And I was saying, wow, look at the fascination people have with something like this. You know, how do you explain it? It's got to be, you know, the romanticization of that life through Hollywood, through the media. Uh, you know, there's, there's no other explanation for it. And you know what? You're, you're right. I had not heard of it, so I'm glad to know of it because I'm going to go watch it now because I'm like everybody else. I'm drawn to this because it's a fascinating time in American history and the lives you led, knowing that the the end of that life might be extraordinarily violent. You don't know when it's coming. You don't know when your you know your ticket's going to be punched and that sort of thing. So it's uh, it, it really is. And and I'm glad you brought up what you did when you talk about young people. Do do you see younger modern day gangs? as emulating in any way the type of gangs that the five families were, or is it a different type of criminal organization? Well, you know, I see these kids, uh, you know, a lot of them, unfortunately, because of the way they were brought up, many of them in, you know, single-parent homes, and they're on the street in an early age, they, they don't have a lot of value for human life. And I've noticed that. And it's, it's very, very sad. It really is. But, you know, in our life, in, in Cosa Nostra Mafia, I want to explain this. You know, murder, some people think that when you take the oath of omerta, that you take an oath to lie, steal, cheat, and kill. And that's not it at all. You know, the the oath of omerta means simply that you'll never reveal that life even exists and you'll never betray the life. Now, as a result of being part of that life, yes, those other things happen. But that's not part of the oath. And why I'm saying that, because murder in that life was taken very seriously, believe it or not. I mean... It was discussed if somebody violated the oath in some way or made a mistake that you know you that would result in serious consequences. It was discussed, uh, and only the boss can make that decision whether or not somebody you know had to go. 
Um, on the street now with these kids, it's it's totally different. I mean, I mean, I had a 12 year old come up to me once when I did a, a speaking engagement at a, at a you know a, a juvenile hall. I was signing books for him. He was 12 years old, and he comes up to me and he looks me in the eye and I said, "What are you here for?" And he kind of looked down, you know. And I said, "Hey, when somebody's asking you a question, look in their eyes. I want an answer. What are you here for?" He just looks at me nonchalantly and he says, well, "I killed somebody." And that's 12 years old. It didn't even bother him, you know, because I got into it a little bit with him. We talked about it. And that's just sad. I mean, that's just sad. And, and I've, I've seen that in many instances throughout these years that I've been working with. It's, it's terrible. So do they try to pattern themselves again? I don't think so. I mean, you know, they just – we were very organized, very structured. It's why, that you know, we had such a dominance in this country for so many years. Uh, but these kids are just they're just wild, I have to tell you. Wild, and they don't have a value of human life. It's very sad. You know, when you talk about value, valuing human life, um, I, I have to ask this question. And I apologize. I could I could do this for, for hours to talk to you about the life and the things that you've experienced. But I want to get to your book. But just one last question about that, about the value of human life. One thing that always fascinated me whenever I would watch mob movies, uh, you know, portrayals of things, whether it be Goodfellas, whether it be Casino or, or Donnie Brasco, any of them, or even, even uh, 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 what's the one, uh, A Bronx Tale. Killers who kill and and are just as ruthless and as vicious and as violent and they'll torture you know uh, uh, enemies and all of the things and yet they they always make the sign of the cross. They're always <laughs> devout Roman Catholics because Italian you know Italian Americans you know I mean the Roman Catholicism is is in the blood and it's in the families and it's amazing to me how they can do terrible horrific ruthless things to people and then bless themselves as if God's good with me and I'm good with God as long as I say a prayer and do a little confession and do a little sign of the cross now and then that's just always been a fascinating um, element of all of this to me. Yeah, and obviously it's it's. Uh... It's, there's, there's something insane about that, I would say, because it, it doesn't blend into our life at all. And it, But you're right. I mean, it's the Catholic upbringing, and, and I, I don't know what motivates them to do something like that. And look, in that life, I, I don't want to sugarcoat anything. There are some guys that just, they're ruthless. There's no question about it. I mean, they, you know, they get off on, on doing those kind of acts. And, uh you know, the sign of the cross, I can't, I don't know how to respond to that, but it, it certainly doesn't blend in with, I mean, I'm I, br- I bring it up only, I bring it up, Michael, only because you're a man of faith now. And again, one of your books, uh, from God, uh, from the Godfather to God the Father, you are a man of faith and you are, you know, you are obviously repentant for all of the terrible things that you were once involved in. And, and I'm just wondering, do any of those individuals, while they're in it, actually think that they are repenting by, by blessing themselves or going to a confession once in a while? Well, uh, what the, what the connection there is? You know, they might be kidding themselves. I don't. I never got into that kind of discussion with anyone, so I can't answer that honestly. But it's 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 very ironic. I can tell you that. Got it. Yeah, I appreciate that. I appreciate your honesty with that. Now, I apologize for all of that historical stuff, but it's fascinating to a lot of people. Now, let's talk about something else else that's fascinating. This comparison in a mafia democracy, how our republic became a mob racket, comparison essentially of the way the government is run in this country to the mafia. I, I don't have time for a ton of specifics, but can you give me a thumbnail sketch of what you were trying to say in this book, Michael? Yeah, you know, I noticed long ago, I really started paying attention to uh, to politics. I mean, really paying attention. 
you know, during the Obama years, maybe a little bit before that with Bush, but really during the Obama years. And as I watched, I just, <clears throat> I just saw the, you know, the Machiavellian ideology that existed in government. And of course, you know, I, I don't know if you know this, but Machiavelli in the book, The Prince, it's almost required reading, you know, for mob guys when we go into prison. So I had that ideology. I agreed with a lot of things at the time that uh, Machiavelli said. And, you know, I started seeing that, you know, in great detail in our government. And it's wrong. I mean, you know, people have said to me so often, you know, Mike, the, the mob should be running the government. I said, no, 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 the mob should not be running the government. That's not what it's all about. And so I started to d dig into it a little bit more. And to me, it's, it's become even more prominent. And it's dangerous. And it's something that people have to be aware of. You know, Machiavelli, one of the things, uh, one major point in his ideology when he was advising the prince how to maintain control of his kingdom, he told the prince, he said, you can do anything you need to do. You can lie, steal, cheat, you can kill to maintain power. However, to the outside world, you must always appear to be upright, honest, and having integrity. And I see that in so many of our politicians. He also said, you know, the promise made um, was a necessity of the past. A promise broken is a necessity of the, of the present. And uh, we see this all the time. And, you know, more and more and more. So when I wrote the book, I really wanted just to alert people. And I went into very, very specific. I mean, this is not a fluff piece or anything else. I did a lot of research. I put a lot of examples. Some people I put on the spot, but it's true. It's all backed up. You know, why are politicians going as, as blue-collar uh, blue collar assets that come out multimillionaires? You know, they use the system to, to uh, uh, you know, attain wealth that they're not supposed to be getting. You know, I, I put so many examples here, and really the reason I wrote the book, I want to make this clear. I'm not looking for people to protest in the street. I'm against violence of, of any kind when it comes to these matters. But they got to be aware, and they got to hold these people accountable. You know, I say this all the time. You have a partner, you have a friend, he lies to you once, uh, okay, you get over it. Second time, gets a little bit more intense. Third, fourth, fifth time, you know, you, you want nothing to do with them anymore. Our politicians lie to us, you know, make campaign promises that they break or disregard or totally reverse, and we say, ah, oh, it's politics. But it's not politics, it's lying, and it's deceit, and it's, and it's hurtful to the people that they're putting in office to... Uh, you know, to support and defend, and it's wrong. And all I'm saying in this book is we got to recognize it, and we got to hold these people accountable. And when they don't do the right thing, we got to throw them out. Period. We're talking, and uh, we're, you know, I'm I'm very pleased and very satisfied because you know the book did hit the bestsellers list on Amazon and and uh, Barnes and Noble in different categories. And but more importantly to me, the comments that I'm reading, people are getting it. They're understanding it. They're seeing it. They're saying, Michael, my eyes are open. And that's what I wanted to achieve in the book. And it looks like it's happening. Well, you know what? I'm so very happy for you that it is. And uh, and I want to recommend this to as many people as possible. I've only gotten the Cliff Notes version of it, if you will, to have this conversation. But I want to learn more and then maybe even talk to you again about, you know, about some of the similarities in the way the, the way that it is run. And, uh, and you're exactly right, by the way, with some of the very evil, dirty, underhanded, in fact, maybe even violent things that happen behind the scenes. But as long as they put up that right facade, uh, the people will be none the wiser and they will continue to support them. 
them. So it's a it's a fascinating uh, concept and uh, and a great comparison. And I want to recommend it to people again. Mafia Democracy: How Our Republic Became a Mob Racket by Michael Franzese. It's his latest. Uh, Michael, thank you for sharing so much about your past, your history, your experiences here, and uh, and and uh, continued success to you. And the best of luck to you with this book. I appreciate that, and, and anytime you want to do it again, you know, I'm a call away. So thank you very I'm gonna, much. I'm going to hold you to that. Just be aware. I'm going to hold you to that, and I look forward to it. You thank got you, it. Sir. God bless. Well, All right, there you go. That's Michael Franzese. I don't know if I didn't plan. I don't think in my career that I would ever tell somebody who is a long time, many decades mafia uh, captain. God bless. I didn't think I'd ever do that. I'd be telling God bless to somebody in that in that realm, but he is obviously. Uh, become a very, very different man since he walked away from that life. And now he's trying to keep young kids on the straight and narrow as well. So I will stand by that. God bless. And I will ask you to stand by as we take our news and come right back on Always Right Radio, AM 1420, The Answer. Always Right Radio. On the answer. I'll tell you what, that was one of the more interesting interviews I've conducted. Seriously. I've interviewed presidents, I've interviewed senators, I've interviewed uh, presidential candidates, I've interviewed NFL, NBA, and Major League Baseball Hall of Famers, Hollywood stars, but uh, not too many members of the mafia, not too many legendary mafia figures before. That was very, very... I've interviewed those who brought down the mafia. Joe Pistone, uh, who, of course, was Donnie Brasco, the real Donnie Brasco in in real life, the FBI agent who infiltrated uh, uh, the crime family and and took them down from the inside, but uh, never an actual former member of the mafia, particularly one of the uh, as much renowned as uh, Michael Francis. So uh, I really enjoyed the conversation. I hope you got something of value from it as well. I, I do. I feel like there's a lot of value there. I don't want to overdwell on it, but um, I, I just the fact that somebody was able to leave the life, turn himself around, and then not just say, whew, got out of there with only 10 years in prison. He served 10 years for doing a stuff that probably would, should have had him locked up for a lot longer than that. You heard him admit to some violence. Doesn't want to talk about it specifically, but he was because it was part of the life. You had to, you had to live as a made man if you were... Uh, if you needed to commit acts of violence in order to protect yourself, in order to advance whatever your own ambitions were, then you did that. But uh, primarily, he was a crook, an earner. He defrauded the government of some $350 million in a bootleg, gas boot, bootlegging scheme. And, uh, you know, it's it's just a pretty fascinating thing. And hopefully, he's somebody who does those things, who can turn himself around, become a person of God, become a person of faith, and then instead of just kind of exhaling and saying, whew, Glad that's over with. Goes out and now mentors youth who are at risk of getting involved in their own criminal organizations. That's just a, it's a great, great conversation. All right, speaking of conversations, I always enjoy this. I have the sound off button on my webpage at alwayswrite.us for a reason. I want you to use it when you can't get through. We're doing an interview. We're backed up with calls or whatever the reason is. Or you're listening when the show isn't live and you record a message and you send it to me just like this. You know, all I keep hearing from these leftist idiots is that guns kill people and rifles massacre children's and children in schools yet i've never seen in 37 years of existence any firearms rifles anything be arrested 
charged and convicted, it always seems to be that the person who used those things, if they're still alive, is the one who faces penalties. And also, I'd also like to point out that allegedly that Border Patrol agent that ran into the school whose wife worked in the school was getting a haircut mm -hmm. and the barber that was cutting his hair, the civilian, lent him his firearm to go take into that school to try and stop the shooter. Now, in Joe Biden's world, that firearm owned by that private individual doesn't exist. And you and I will be less safer for it, as well as God knows how many children, more children would have died. All right. That one came in from the politically incorrect mechanic in Flakewood, as he likes to call it. <laughs> uh, he's not wrong. And, and it's not just in Biden's world, that g good guy with a gun who gave the gun to uh, the, the uh, Border Patrol agent who was off duty. And not only in his world does he not exist, but in the world of the left. I played this a couple of times today. Jim Acosta on CNN saying this 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 whole idea of good guys with guns stopping bad guys with guns is a fallacy. Like yourself, they keep saying that the answer to all of this is good guys with guns. The 19 good guys with guns failed in Uvalde. The cops were there in the school. There was a school resource officer who apparently was MIA. And none of that helped. How, how do people like this have jobs? How do you get a job speaking to people on television about these important events when you say none of that helped? The situation ended the way every one of those situations ends. When a good guy with a gun either shoots the bad guy dead or the bad guy not wanting to be shot dead surrenders and puts his hands up, or the bad guy with the gun kills himself. That's the only way it stops is when guns show up. Guns save lives. I want that to be as clear as clear can be. No matter how many times you hear, that was uh, Acosta on CNN, and this, of course, is uh, MSNBC. You know, we've seen very clearly that, you know, there's no such thing as a good guy with a gun taking out a bad guy with a gun. <laughs> No such thing, really. No such thing, except, well, that there are, and there are stories all over the place like that. The most recent, of course, is the situation in Charleston, West Virginia, that we talked about, in which a mass shooter opened up fire with his rifle from his car window at a graduation crowd, could have killed a dozen or a couple of dozen people, Lord only knows, stopped by a law-abiding citizen with a gun who shot and killed him. We'll pick this up tomorrow. Thanks so much uh, for to my guests. Thanks to Johnny. Thanks to Marianne running the show. And thanks to you for listening. I hope you have a great day. Be well, be safe, and stay free. And everybody Enjoy say it with me now. Silence. Let's go, Brandon. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. 
with in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com, salemnow.com.